Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. I'm joined by my co-host, Amma Gregarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have an outstanding show in store today. We're going to hear from a Starbucks worker organizer in Astoria, Queens, whose recent firing has ignited an uproar. Advocates for the Build Public Renewables Act get another chance to make their case tomorrow. On Thursday's New York State Assembly will host an unprecedented midsummer hearing on that BPRA. If passed and signed into law, the bill would greatly expand New York's public power system and the state's use of renewable energy sources. To discuss this, we'll speak with Sarah Hannah Shrista. She recently knocked off a 13-term state assembly member in her Hudson Valley district while running on the promise to fight for public power. And in our final segment, we'll hear from Reverend Billy Talon of the Church of Stop Shopping about their new Earth Church which is housed in a former bank building on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Reverend Billy insists if we're going to survive the climate crisis, we will uh, soon need an Earth-centered cultural revolution. But first, I have some sad news to share. Michael Lardner, founder and driving force behind the Marxist Education Project, died last Wednesday. He was 68. Michael hailed from a family of Michigan auto workers and came to New York as a young man to work on the grapes boycott called by the United Farm Workers. In that same era, he helped found the New York Marxist School, which became the Brecht Forum. When the Brecht Forum closed down in 2014, Michael stepped into a moment of great sadness and disappointment and launched the Marxist Education Project. Our condolences to Michael's wife, Elena, and their children, Daniel and Nora. For many years before the pandemic, the MEP was based at the Brooklyn Commons, Commons which is also where WBAI and the Independent Us, where we, we uh, call home. Tributes to Michael have been pouring in from around the world. And earlier today, John, my co-host, spoke with Kazembe Balagan, a former program director at Brecht Forum, who first met Michael over a decade ago. Let's listen to that. About Michael and Marxist education, I think about you know sustained community. Um, I think about Michael's ability and want to throw a hundred percent of his own body, his mind, his heart, his lungs into building a sustained community in the face of all face against all odds, and that's who Michael was. His wide eyes. His big tone, tenor voice, to hear his voice was so comforting and so good, but it was his heart. It's his heart, the openness of his heart, and you know, and 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 that, and, and to have a big heart like that, you know, to sustain movements, to sustain spaces. So he was a he was a he was a comrade. He was a brother, you know, and he was um, you know, and um, and uh. You know, and um, he believed deeply in working-class people. Yeah. If Marxism teaches us anything, it teaches us that, you know, that this, the class struggle that we have is not just a struggle between capitalists and the working class. It's a struggle to define what it means to be human. Because mm. capitalism, because capitalism every single day degrades us. It makes us feel like we're stupid. It makes us feel like, we're, we're, you know, even though we're working hard, 
were, were, were mm-hmm. morally and, and, and fiscally impoverished. Mm-hmm. You know, and the spaces that, like, the MEP, the Marxist Education Project created, spaces like the Breck Forum, hell, the, the spaces that Independent created are spaces <clears throat> that, that allow for people to have real human interaction with each other and to remind ourselves right. what it means to be human. And, and mm-hmm. just by doing that, you're engaging in a class struggle. The thing that we can do now is just continue his work, you know, pick mm-hmm. up his work. One thing he taught us was that, you know, that DIY culture, that do-it-yourself culture, is that you can you can also create institutions, and that's something that we you know say is not something that is like foreign to us. You right. know, saying we we can we can build institutions, we can sustain it, and once you get off the ground, you know, what I'm saying you find like-minded people to continue to sustain it. That was Kazembe Balagoon speaking about Michael Lardner, founder of the Marxist Education Project, who died last Wednesday. Just to say one more thing about Michael in the, in the MEP, I saw day in and day out how hard he worked to organize and put on events at Brooklyn Commons uh, while he was also working a full-time job at a printing shop. When the pandemic hit, MEP started doing all their events on Zoom, and this has given MEP and its Marxist pedagogy a true worldwide reach in the last couple of years in terms of both of its audience and the people who can participate as teachers and panelists that it uh, wasn't able to do before. So, it, And I spoke with a source at the MEP uh, who has told me that there is a core group that intend, intends to continue the organization, and we wish them all the best in that endeavor. Yes, we do. And um, now we're going to shift into our first segment. So speaking of class struggle and building institutions, we're going to look at the ongoing struggle to unionize workers at Starbucks franchises across the United States. In December, two Starbucks stores in Buffalo made history when they voted yes to a union. Starbucks workers at 316 stores in 36 states have filed to unionize despite Starbucks' aggressive anti-union campaign. So far, 201 of those Starbucks stores in 32 states have won union elections, and get this, just 40 have have lost their election. But uh, in retaliation, Starbucks has been union busting, and among other tactics, they fired worker organizers and um, in one case have, have closed a store. On Friday, Starbucks workers united which is the group, you know, organizing uh, Starbucks workers all across the country. Uh, they rallied with Amazon Labor Union, which is organizing Amazon and OPIU, which represents desk workers. And at all of those um, entities, worker organizers were recently fired. So organizers have recently been fighting against that, and a raucous crowd joined them. And we're going to listen to a clip, a clip from Friday here. It's not to erase struggle, 
that was Diana Moreno first speaking, a union advocate with New, New Immigrant Community Empowerment, and then Zakaria Kafagi, president of the New York Cannabis Workers Union. But here with us, we have Austin Locke, who is a key Starbucks organizer and was fired from Starbucks on July 5th, just day, five days after his store on Dittmar's Boulevard and 31st Street in Astoria, Queens, won their union election in a 7-4 to four vote. He's here to speak with us about his experience and update us on the union fight. Austin, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Great, great to have you. So you worked at Starbucks for nearly six years. Um, tell us first why you decided to start organizing um, in this union campaign. Um, I mean, at the start of the pandemic, we had uh, a few issues in the store and they just kept getting worse. Um, management wasn't really responding. Um, and so there was an incident that took place and we all were on board with unionizing. Um, so I was already in a union, restaurant workers union. Um, so I spoke with some of my coworkers. Another coworker approached me about uh, unionizing with Starbucks Workers United. And in three weeks from that point, uh, we filed. Uh, we filed on April 14th and then we won our election June 30th. And I was uh, fired on July 5th. And, right. and can you talk more about your firing? Uh, did they give uh, any official reasons for why that happened? And how sure. has that been received by your coworkers? Yeah, they gave two reasons. Uh, they say I had falsely reported workplace violence. And then the second was that I violated Starbucks health and safety guidelines. And both are unsubstantiated. They have no evidence. Uh, basically, the first charge was uh, a month prior to my firing. Uh, so June 8th. Uh, there was an incident with another coworker where they put their hands on me um, and I reported it. Um, and they say, I can't see the video footage of the incident. And they say the incident, uh, the video footage shows that uh, there was no physical contact between the ship supervisor and me uh, and that I falsely reported this. And then the second charge of um, uh, violating health and safety guidelines is basically there was some, uh, check and we have to do every day. Um, and they say I didn't do it uh, regarding COVID. And and what has been the work, your workers' response, um, coworkers and other people in, in the labor community and then the general public to the extent they found out? Yeah, my coworkers are pretty upset. Um, everybody in the, in the community is uh, pretty supportive too. Um, I've had tons of organizations support me, tons of people from the community come out to the to the event on Friday. Uh, we had a, around 200 people, I think. It was a lot. But we even had Buffalo um, Starbucks Workers United workers show up, too. That was cool. Right. And talk a little bit more about that solidarity that has been on the ground among these young workers. Um, obviously, this, the stakes are large and the enemies are big, as we heard uh, Diana say in, in that sound clip. You know, you're up against the, the world's billionaires in a way. But talk mm-hmm. about the, the solidarity on the ground and, and how you think it could keep growing. Um, I think conditions are only getting worse in society. And uh, as, you know, younger people are coming to the labor uh, force, they're seeing that, you know, they get out of college and they're not getting it a job like they were promised or whatever, and, and they're stuck in the working class. Um, and I think that practical experience is giving people ideas and the ideas are to, you know, organize themselves and fight back. And it's only going to spread. I don't think they can stop 
uh, these union efforts. Right, right. The the fervor is strong. I think the heat is on. You know, people aren't making any more, but uh, everything's more expensive, and that doesn't that doesn't help either. But um, you were fired, and uh, that you know can anger workers to unionize to organize more, but it can also make them scared. And then now you're out of a job, and you can't be on the ground. Sorry, there's a siren. You can't be on the ground organizing in the workplace, which is the best place to organize. So talk about the difficulties with that and pushing back with filing unfair labor practice charges, but how the entity that oversees those, the National Labor Relations Board, can be slow moving and uh, how you plan to sort of, you know, what's your next move? Yeah, for sure. Um, We have filed a ULP charge, and I know that's going to take a while with the NLRB. Um, I've already spoken to an investigator with the NLRB as well, but we've also filed um, an investigation with DCWP, which is a, a local um, labor uh, branch in in New York City, and they're they're much more responsive. It's going to be uh, a quicker turnaround, maybe a couple months, uh, that I might get reinstated because you know we have all the evidence and everything, and they're they're asking for you know the the video footage and all evidence pertaining to this situation from Starbucks as well. And do you get a sense your coworkers have been intimidated in any way by this, or? You feel For like sure. it's uh, um, strengthened their desire to have a union and uh, seeing how the company has treated you. I think it's a mix. Um, I think s- some people are are more feel more empowered, um, but I think the majority of people see me being fired and other you know people around the country being fired um, at Starbucks and other sectors um, as a. <laughs> They're really cracking down on people and it's, it's scary, but I think we just have to, you know, educate people about their, their legal rights regarding unionization. And, you know, if people are illegally fired like me, you get a settlement, you get, you know, all kinds of relief. I mean, if it's illegal. Right. right. And just to note here, I think something like over 50 Starbucks workers across the country ha- have been fired, including the seven who were fired in, in, in Memphis, though I think they got their jobs back. But th- this has been a, a scorched earth approach from the Starbucks uh, corporate leadership. And Austin was the first fired here in New York, but um, you rallied with Amazon on on um, Friday. And obviously there's a lot of parallels in the campaigns, huge multimillion dollar companies. Amazon has been firing left and right too. So it's, it's yeah. great you guys out there together fighting against it, but you've got to keep the pressure on because Gerald Bryson, who was fired from Amazon has is still in his case is still being heard two years later. So they're trying to, you know, take or- organizers out of the workplace. We need to move on here, but in one more minute in one minute, please just talk a little bit about the restaurant workers union you're a part of, because I think it's really important that all these sort of autonomous unions are just popping up in the past couple of years. Sure. Go ahead. Oh. Oh, go ahead. Oh, all right. Yeah. So I'm part of Restaurant Workers Union. Um, it's an independent and democratic union in, in New York. We're trying to organize the, the restaurant sector as a whole. Um, and we feel that, you know, the big unions are, you know, sort of a mediator between the ruling class and the workers. And a lot of times the contracts you get uh, aren't that great. And, you know, um, the leadership isn't the working class. So what we're trying to do is build working class leadership. Right. Absolutely. And how can we find Restaurant Workers Union? Yes, we've got a website, restaurantworkersunion.org. 
We also have an Instagram and a Twitter. I believe the, the Instagram is rwu underscore str, and then the Twitter is rwu dot str. Great. And of course, you can find Starbucks Workers United under Starbucks Workers United on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, just before we sign off, we want to share some good news that another Starbucks Workers United campaign just found success in Long Island and partners at the Farmingdale Starbucks have now voted 13 to 1. So that's not going to be too hard to get people on board to fight for a contract. Uh, thank you, Austin Locke, a recently fired worker at Starbucks, uh, for joining us. And we'll keep up with you all. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go to a short music break here, and we'll be right back with our second segment. was the Ross Moshe Music Now Quintet playing at the Brooklyn Commons in 2019. Uh, Ross Moshe was a favorite of Michael Lardner, who uh, was a longtime fan of uh, the free jazz movement. And uh, now we move on to our second segment, where we turn to the fate of the earth. New York City and much of the rest of the country has been broiling in a record summer heat wave the past week. We're also seeing Record summer temperatures everywhere from Greenland to Pakistan. Yet all progress on climate action from the federal government has stalled thanks to Senator Joe Manchin and the filibuster. And, of course, all the fossil fuel corporations that are uh, financing politicians like Joe Manchin. Meanwhile, here in <coughs> here in New York, climate activists continue pushing the state legislature, which has Democratic supermajorities, to take bold climate action. The Build Public Renewables Act would greatly expand publicly controlled renewable energy sources, create union jobs, and reduce electricity rates. It almost made it through the state legislature in June before it was stopped by Assembly Speaker Carl Heasty, who said he needed to learn more about this legislation. Climate activists will be protesting outside Heasty's lower Manhattan office tomorrow at 12 noon in advance of a special public hearing on the Build Public Renewables Act 
that is slated for Thursday. Heasty agreed to hold that hearing after coming under massive pressure following his power play in June to stop the BPRA. Joining us now to talk about the renewed push for public power in New York State is Sarahana Shrestha. Uh, Sarahana was uh, recently won the Democratic nomination in District 103 in the Hudson Valley. She defeated a 13-term incumbent, Kevin H- Cahill, uh, with a grassroots people-powered uh, campaign, and she made public power uh, and in swiftly building out renewable energy sources in New York, uh, a centerpiece of her campaign. Sarah Hanna, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you. And congratulations on on your big victory. Uh, Before we uh, talk some more about the Build Public Renewables Act and all all the maneuvering in the legislature right now, uh, can you give our uh, listeners a sense of uh, how you you won that election, the WBAI Airwaves uh, extend uh, up into your district, but probably many of our listeners may not be familiar with this really historic victory that you won uh, last month. Sure. So, you know, we ran a grassroots campaign. We started campaigning early, um, started last November, and we started hitting the ground right away because this district is geographically quite huge. Um, There's only few pockets of dense areas that we can easily knock doors in. So we knew going in that, you know, there would be um, a lot of rural terrain, a lot of long driveways. So we planned accordingly and um, intended to reach as many people at the, at the doors as possible. And that's really what we did. And, you know, uh, coming out of the pandemic and sort of um, culmination of multiple sources of political stress, people were pretty open to talking. Um, and this, you know, being in the Hudson Valley, uh, is pretty climate-minded uh, population overall. And we had a fairly easy time talking about climate inaction and using that as an example of what we could be doing much better in New York as setting an example using our Democratic supermajority um, and the wealth we have in this state as, you know, the opportunity to to basically push politics forward in the direction that we need. And climate was a very easy way to illustrate that this is, you know, in, in a crisis that's here, we have the tools, we have the means to start addressing it, but we have it, right? We've gone three years without passing meaningful legislation. So this was a point of frustration that we could really easily talk about. And, you know, um, in the middle of this, we had an ice storm where there was a power outage. Um, our, our energy provider here is Central Hudson. And people were already feeling very frustrated about uh, billing errors that was resulting in huge bills. And then after this four-day blackout, um, there was a, a huge uh, spike announced in the supply rate and people were even more frustrated. And this has been an ongoing frustration. This has become, you know, um, an affordable issue. And climate actually has always been a- an issue of our economy, right? It's a result of an economy that's very much profit-centered, um, exploitation-centered. And I think, you know, now we're in this middle of an um, affordability crisis where people are having to deal with these energy bills, uh, with these heat waves, um, you know, with um, housing insecurity on top of that. So, yeah, I think that it really resonated with people that we were just not doing everything we could uh, to address some of these crises. And speaking of power companies, 
Uh, we have uh, Con Ed here in New York, and you have a company called uh, Central Hudson up uh, your way. Uh, can you talk about these uh, companies? I mean, they're private monopolies and the, the pernicious uh, influence they have. Yeah. So, you know, except for, uh, you know, the only exception in our state is Long Island where the, you know, the setup is slightly different. But all over our state, we have a private uh, monopoly by a for-profit energy provider over our energy distribution. Um, and, you know, the issues that consumers face is pretty much the same. You know, it's a recurring theme, right? Um, reliability is low. Investment in infrastructure is low. Uh, you know, prices are unreliable. And um, a commitment to renewables is low as well. And But we do have a unique scenario where Central Hudson has exceptionally botched uh, their billing system errors and people are stuck with thousands of dollars of bills that they have not paid because they don't know how to pay for it. Um, and you know, it has not affected a small group of people. This is a huge, uh, issue happening in our district. Um, and I think it has made it very easy to talk about who do we want running our energy system? You know, who, who should have the most influence over it? And when I started talking about public power, honestly, I thought the response was much more um, supportive than I was expecting because, you know, people are, um, on the one hand, very worn down by private companies, on the other hand, aware of, you know, underinvestment in our public goods and what that has done to our pri- uh, public services. Uh, but I think people are so fed up that they are willing to reimagine. And that is a very good opening um, for conversations, just willing to reimagine who should be in control of what? Right. Well, I think private entities uh, and resource-hungry corporations have have been, you know, the powerful people in the world now for 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 quite a few eons, um, a, a few centuries. Sorry, is the word I was looking for. So, I mean, maybe people are realizing it's it's not working. Um, but that would be that would be great to see. So, talk about um, pushing for that in tomorrow's protest outside of Speaker Heasty's Lower Manhattan office and Thursday's special hearing. Yeah. So I will I will not be at the protest, but I will be you know showing my solidarity from here and. Um, I, um, as a candidate, will not be able to speak at the hearing, but I have submitted my written testimony. And here we are constantly organizing um, around this bill because, you know, as it turned out, people here are very supportive of this bill and not just younger folks and not just, um, you know, folks of specific um, uh, climate orientation or whatever. Just across the board, people are like, yeah, why shouldn't we have a public option for renewable energy? Um, so I think that... We are hoping um, to, you know, with how close we came in the state legislature passing the state Senate, um, we are hoping that we can really hammer home the importance of acting on climate swiftly, not acting around the legislative calendar, but really treating it as an emergency that it is. You know, we have lost so much time on all of the things that we could have done. And now, you know, our options are getting um, uh, smaller. And I think we have to start addressing things at the root causes because, you know, we've given the half measures a long time, um, for trial and it's just not working. And, you know, with the economy getting more uncertain, I think that it is, um, in a very dangerous to attach our, um, uh, potential for getting fossil fuels to attach that to how much profits 
uh, these renewable developers can make. You know, they, they should not be so dependent um, on that. So I think it is a protection measure. Uh, it is climate resiliency. It is making us more um, safe from being completely engulfed by, you know, yet another crisis, which is becoming a, a more common theme for um, how we are living these days. And yeah, we absolutely have to protect ourselves. So I'm, I'm hoping, you know, I have joined the calls for a special, um, session to pass bill public renewables and clarify some of the questions and some of the clarities that we need, um, uh, to collect at the hearing, um, for the assembly. And hopefully coming out of that, people in the legislature will really realize that this is a, a measure that we can rally behind and get moving. Right. And uh, I don't think people uh, realize, for example, in New York State, uh, 4% of our energy supply is uh, uh, renewable uh, solar and, and wind power. Uh, and that's like only a fraction of, of, say, the state of Texas, which I understand uh, produces something like 28% of its power from uh, renewable energy sources. And uh, so with that in mind, uh, can you just... Um, Explain a little bit how we got to this moment with this special hearing on Thursday. The BPRA passed the state Senate in early June and then went to the assembly and, and then it stalled out there. And the role of Carl Heasty uh, in, in that um, stymieing of the legislation. And uh, of course, this is the legislative body you're going to uh, be joining next January. You won your nomination and you have only nominal opponent in the general election. So, yeah, tell us about the assembly and, and why you feel it's going to be important to bring your kind of energy there. Yeah, I think that, you know, the reason I decided to run is just getting a close look at Albany and seeing how it works, like the work ethic and the level of organization that's going inside Albany just does not match the level of crises that are happening on the outside, you know, um, we need to be acting like an emergency, which which we did um, on this bill. You know, I think that this is really a result of relentless organizing um, where we did not give up on meeting with various parties to get, you know, to to bring clarity of the bill to them, um, you know, to make sure that they are not, um, uh, you know, scared about some of the language um, of the bill, because the truth is, you know, pe- you know, left to its own devices, right? People are not always understanding uh, bills correctly. And I think we just put in a lot of um, work into making people understand this bill because it is it is a shift of perspective, right? We have spent so many decades um, with this notion that the private market will fix um, uh, everything. We just need to give it the incentive that it needs, you know? So we have been so entrenched in that way of thinking that I think we needed a little bit of a nudge to, to shift the perspective and look at it from a slightly different angle. You know, energy is a public good. This is about survival. This is this is about, um, uh, you know, having... Um, maximizing our chances of not heading into an absolute climate catastrophe. Um, and I think as a result of that relentless organizing that was coordinated both outside and inside, we did not give up until the last minute uh, to bring attention to this bill. You know, it, it, I was personally surprised when it passed the state Senate. That was a huge, um, it felt like a huge win for us, you know, 
felt like it brought us that much closer to seeing this bill as a reality. So when we saw that it passed in the state Senate, we absolutely put in all of the effort that we could to try our chances at the assembly. We did not give up until the very last hour. Um, and as a result of that, we got this hearing, which I'm very grateful about. Um, you know, I, I know that the opposition, which is private companies are already um, uh, you know, uh, working very hard to make sure that this bill is uh, blocked. They've openly said that this is not fair to them because NIPA would simply do too much of a good job uh, building renewable energy, which is, uh, you know, um, something sounds like that, a good reason to do it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, right? Because because, like I said, you know, I'm I'm at this stage. I'm sorry if it's not making you profit. This is about saving people, and and you know, so. I think that we have been able to continue that conversation and hopefully it is pushed in the right direction. Hopefully we uh, address some of the questions that people have and see um, uh, that, you know, the assembly can feel the same way about it that the state uh, Senate does, which is that this is good for us. Um, and I think even the assembly, you know, it had uh, quite a few um, votes that were, uh, rallied from, you know, from just unofficially and also quite a few, uh, co-sponsors on this bill. So there is support. I think it's just about, um, navigating some of, um, the questions that people feel like they need clarity on. And yeah, so I'm really hoping that we move in a good direction after this. Right. And just to clarify what this bill would do, it would greatly expand the the power and the capacity of the New York uh, Power Authority, which was founded by FDR uh, in the early 1930s, before uh, when he was governor of New York and built a bunch of uh, hydroelectric dams. And uh, it's the largest uh, state level public power authority in the country. And this legislation would kind of take the shackles off it and really allow, allow it to uh, build out uh, capacity around solar. And wind and and the, some of the private industry are terrified of that because they realize a, a public sector entity like that could uh, do that at a, in a far more affordable and and rational uh, manner. And your opponent Kevin Cahill, uh, uh, when he was asked about the legislation uh, this uh, past spring, I recall he he said this isn't a climate change bill. This is a a change the means of production bill. And uh, I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. Uh, <laughs> Any last thought on that before we have to go here? Um, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, um, it's when there is a crisis like the crisis that we are dealing with right now, which is a crisis of many crises, you know, the public domain is really the best uh, space for responding quickly with innovation, with investment. You know, this is what the public domain is best suited for. And the private market just has not delivered on this idea of innovation that we attach to them. You know, they, it has not been very inventive and responsive uh, to our crises. Um, and, and I think they've just gone down further, you know, the whole of just of just very narrow-minded uh, quarterly reports of, of profits for shareholders, and right. that's not cutting it for us. So there's this inherent conflict between people's needs um, and and the profits that these companies need to report, you know. And right. I think that this is a moment uh, we do not have any option but to be bold because we have to address the problems at the root cause. And so NIPA actually has, you know, this artificial cap um, that it cannot produce, uh, you know, be very involved in producing the renewable energy at the scale that we need. And this cap exists 
um, to encourage the private market to build renewables. But clearly, that's not what's going on because we've been stuck at a very low level of renewables for a while. Um, so I think right. it's, we have, it's we time have uh, to... 20 seconds and we'll have to wrap up. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's time um, to let, you know, to strengthen our public goods and, and let us um, have the state do its job, which is to protect us from emergencies. All righty. Sarah Hanestresta uh, ran on the campaign slogan, the future must be beautiful. Uh, Democratic nominee in Assembly District 103 and very likely the next assembly member from that Hudson Valley District. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on the Independent News Hour. Thank you. Okay, we'll be back with more after this short music break.
That was that was end of the world by Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping Choir, and uh, we will be joined in a few minutes by Reverend Billy to talk about the Earth Church that uh, he and the other people in the choir have uh, started and the uh, cultural revolution they're trying to start there. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we want to urge all our listeners who can do so uh, to please support this station. Please help keep. Uh, Shows like the Independent News Hour and so many other great shows on the air. Keep all the voices that you hear all day on WBAI. Keep this platform alive and flourishing. Our phone number is 212-209-2950. And that you can also uh, make a donation or become a WBAI buddy, a monthly sustainer at give number two wbai.org. And you can call 212-209-2950 or go online to give number two, WBAI.org. Again, 212-209-2950 online at give number two, WBAI.org to support this station. We are listener supported. The downside is that we are constantly asking you for money. The upside is that we have the ability to bring on and say what we want and give you independent on the ground radical radio. And uh, we're a beacon of that here in New York. There's no other station like this. We've been around since I think 1967, my dad used to be beyond BAI. This is a legacy. Please help it keep alive in this time of, of darkness. We, I think this really is a, is, is a light of a station. So please donate 212-209-2950 online at give the number two WBAI.org, 510, 20, 50, 100, two pieces a month. Give, a, give the money to us instead, 212-209-2950. Give number two wbai.org online. That's right. Any way you slice it, uh, one pizza a, a month uh, worth of uh, support would uh, really help this uh, station. And the money uh, right now is needed to pay the rent on the antenna and the transmitter at four times square. It costs $17,000 a month for the station to beam its signal out across the five boroughs up into the Hudson Valley where we talked with Sarah Hanna a few minutes ago into uh, New Jersey and Long Island as well, but it, it costs money. It's New York. The rent is high, $17,000 a month. We've got one more week to go in this current push. We're trying to make one more month's rent and, uh, you know, get out uh, ahead of the uh, bill collectors just a little bit. So one more time, 212-209-2950 or give number two, WBAI.org. Your support makes all the difference. It's listeners like you that, I keep this station going. Uh, you know, we're not a national Pentagon radio. We're not national petroleum radio with all those big uh, corporate sponsors uh, that uh, would give us money to say the kind of things and give you the kind of programming they want to bring forward. This is People's Radio, 212-209-2950. And with that, uh, speaking about voices of the people and uh, radical voices uh, that you won't normally hear in corporate media, uh, we're so happy to be uh, joined today uh, by Reverend uh, Billy Talon of the Church of Stop Sh- uh, Shopping, uh, which has been performing in New York uh, for over 20 years. And more uh, recently, uh, the church, which has a very st- uh, strong earth-loving bent, uh, has uh, founded an earth church in the Lower East Side in a former uh, bank building on uh, Avenue C and Third Street, and uh, 
uh, uh, Billy and the church members well, say that we we not only need a political revolution to get the kind of change that Sarah Hanna was talking about in the last segment about you know uh, we that we need transformative change in Albany to get a, a, a massive build out of uh, renewable energy sources, but we also uh, need a cultural revolution in how we think about our relationship to the earth and how that in, would Amen. inspire us to take bold action. Reverend Billy, welcome back to WBAI Radio. That's good preaching, John. <laughs> well, I've learned it from the best. <laughs> Thank you for having me today. Yes, yeah, so tell us about this uh, Earth Church, uh, what it is and, and, and why you feel like it's uh, uh, a harbinger of maybe more Earth Churches we'll see uh, sprouting up. Well, we, we want to have a stronger relationship to the Earth, our activism that will make a difference, uh, it's been proven it doesn't really register with power when it's just litigation or data collection or mass mailings or um, lobbying. And, you know, the, the um, right thinking, ideological positioning, uh, you really have to love the earth. And, and if, you, if you are close and intimate, with this world of miracles that we live in, um, what's more miraculous than a, than a healthy forest? You know, you once you once you're a part of that nature, your activism changes completely. It's very easy to be a zealot, <laughs> John. <laughs> it's very easy to to defend the green space. It's much easier to shut down a, a pipeline or a fracking well with um, that special intimate relationship to the earth. So we meet every Sunday and sing up a storm. And we're here down in the East Village. Uh, and we're, we're kind of like a musical climate camp. You know what a climate camp is? Like they have them in Europe a lot. People will camp out at a pipeline or camp out at a, a dam or a, a polluting site. Uh, so here we have uh, the atrocious spectacle of a forest in the middle of Manhattan is being clear cut. The East River Park, you know, the, the long, narrow park between the, the FDR and the river from the Brooklyn Bridge on the south, and the oh yeah, I spent a lot of time there, and we covered uh, it's uh, the battle to save it. They, uh, yes, we did. When we Yvette and April were on the front page of the, were on the cover of the made the cover of the Indy. I just talked to Yvette today. Um, so we are here at the site of uh, this crime against the Earth and this taking of green space from. Um, people who live in low-income housing, tens of thousands of children are having their green space taken from them, basically by real estate interests. Uh, basically, this will, it's hard to say what's going to happen, but the best bet is is their park is being turned into luxury towers. I think that's the, that's the, being a New Yorker, I look at that and that's what immediately comes to mind based on my experience. So we're here just a couple avenues away singing our radical earth songs, and then we go down to the trees. 
Um, this is a, this is a, uh, we've, you know, in the church of stop shopping, we've been singing to tree sitters up in the branches of redwood trees on the West coast in 2003. We did that, you know, we've been earth being an anti-consumerist is being an earth lover. And, uh, but we are, we are really concentrating on saving every tree now, just saving every bit of green space we can. So uh, come and join us Sundays at 5 p.m. Avenue C at East 3rd Street, just a half a block from the New Eurekan Cafe. Avenue E at East 3rd Street, Sundays. At what time? 5 p.m. 5 p.m. And, and Billy, I have a question for you. You know, we talk about love for the earth and anti-consumerism and fighting these political battles. But I think, uh, you know, anti-consumerism extends beyond a love for uh, a love for the earth extends beyond anti-consumerism and fighting for the environment. There's still a cultural aspect. Um, and just because you're being anti-consumerist doesn't mean that you are not still creating art, creating culture, creating radical free culture. I mean, talk about the art inherent in your movement, um, the fashion, dare I say. <laughs> and that's important. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, fast fashion is the criminal, you know, in the sweatshops, uh, uh, the the this neoliberal economy uh, is anti-earth and uh, we can't live this way. We're not going to be allowed by the earth to live this way. Um, we just had a this this past week, a number of the environmental organizations gathered at the big digital clock clock on the southeast corner of Union Square. You know what I'm talking about? Used to be the national debt, and now it's a climate clock. And it's a countdown to the – it's at the seven-year point now. Uh, It's a countdown to the point where we will no longer be able to influence the course of the Earth's extinction process and and uh, this is this come this date comes from the IPCC scientists at the United Nations um, we we watched the odometer go from seven years to six years uh, and you know the days and the and the hours and the minutes they, the, the whole the whole a lot thing of data flipped, there flipped over a lot of data <laughs> big data on the side of the on the, on the side of that building and so we had a, a moment of silence, uh, and you know, I I I know that uh, environmentalism, successful environmentalism, cannot be done by an upper middle class um, program that we think of as the the environmental movement. Traditionally, the big NGOs, the big nonprofit corporations, have been weak in the face of what's been happening with the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, they they are not political in the right way. They think of the earth as being a single issue that is not connected to other issues. And no, it fighting for the earth must be a justice issue. It must be, or it won't be effective. Right. Amen. Right now uh, we have to go in about a minute, but can you talk a little bit about your, your hope or your, your vision for uh, this, this earth church, and, and how it might be emulated or uh, replicated in other places. And it can be sort of a seed uh, 
for a, a more earth-centered uh, spirituality becoming more mainstream in society? Yes, uh, it's a secular spirituality is what we're in. We're in such dangerous territory uh, uh, with that religion kind of talk, uh, and we are not Christians, and we're not any ideology. Uh, we are the earth lovers. Our faith is in is in the miracles of the earth. Uh, when you when you gather together and sing, you know, as and the the lifted voices of the Stop Shopping Choir are what we have to sing with here. Um, you become a kind of natural being, and you are halfway to, you know, the clearing of a beautiful forest. And this is this is a uh, a full body uh, cultural launch into. Is that a fossil fuel phrase? Launch, <laughs> flight into. Uh, into your ecosystem, into the earth around you. And so we have we have a sister organization now that uh, in London. There's a Stop Shopping Church in London, a choir of 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 twenty people. We're gonna have we, to go in we, twenty seconds, Billy. 20, 20 seconds. Amen. Well, Earth Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you for letting me talk about the Earth Church today. Definitely. Come on yeah. over. People can always keep up with what you're up to at RevBilly.com as well. And uh, I've been to a couple of the services, both at the Bank Building and at the Grove of Trees uh, by the 6th Street uh, crossover. Uh, it's uh, it's quite an experience, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again uh, in church. And thank you for thank all you. you do, Reverend Billy. Thank you. Where's hallelujah. All righty. And uh, – so uh, we are about to wrap up now. I would thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson. We'll, uh, we'll be off next week, but back at the same time in two weeks. And uh, Amba, what's our uh, uh, song tonight that we're going to leave on? Oh, we would also just like to thank Owen Schacht and Jenna Gardino for doing some great help on this show. And we are going to listen to Hasta Siempre, Comandante Che Guevara, which was originally uh, written by a uh, Cuban, Pablo Pablo something, but we're going to listen to it by Soledad Bravo, excuse that miss there, and she is a Chilean revolutionary singer who was deeply inspired by the revolution, and today is the 69th anniversary of the Cuban revolution against U.S.-backed dictator Batista, so let's hear Hasta Siempre, Comandante Che Guevara. Thank you.